Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. This morning, we're going to wrap up our series as we've been walking through some of the classic Old Testament Bible stories. And uh, before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of a teaser uh, for where we're going next. Um, You know that as a church, Antioch uh, really schedules our shared life around the historic Christian calendar or the liturgical calendar, which means that around the end of every November, early December, we begin a journey through the story uh, of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. So we start with the season of Advent towards the end of November, and then we move into Christmas, and then we move through the seasons of Epiphany and Lent. We enter into Holy Week where we observe Good Friday and celebrate Easter Sunday, and then 50 days later, we celebrate Pentecost, and um, sometime in June, the church calendar kind of uh, wraps its arc up. And so um, the season between Pentecost and Advent, or roughly June through October, in the church calendar is traditionally called ordinary time. Ordinary time. So that's the season uh, that we've been in this summer and continue to find ourselves in, which is really fitting because ordinary seems like such a good description of life right now, right? Like, just seems like a really good way of summing up the world these days. It's just kind of ordinary. Everything's pretty normal, everyone's pretty chill, things are pretty much business as usual. Like, the truth is. This is one of the least ordinary times most of us have ever lived through, isn't it? We've got protests and riots and more shootings than I can keep up with. We're in the middle of this global pandemic, hundreds of thousands of sicknesses and deaths, and nobody can even agree what this thing is or what we should do about it. Our summer plans were all canceled. Our kids are kind of going back to school next week, but not really. We've got hurricanes and wildfires and conspiracy theories and scandals. And on top of all of that, we're in the midst of the most divisive and polarizing presidential election in memory. So 58 days from now. uh, These days are anything but ordinary. And... To make things even more complicated, everything is politicized, isn't it? Like every single event or issue or news story, like the right takes it one way, the left takes it another way, and no one trusts the other side, no one's actually listening to each other, and people on both sides specifically of this election are talking about it as if like humanity itself is at stake, like this is the end of the world. And it just gets kind of exhausting, doesn't it? And it gets kind of overwhelming. For me, it gets kind of depressing. And the tendencies want to want to just check out and withdraw from it all. And at the same time, it's enticing or maybe even addicting. It's easy to get sucked into it all, into the drama 
into the division, even into the demonization of those who differ. So it's both a challenging and confusing time, and it's a time that's riddled with potential for all kinds of disruption to the order, not just of our world or our country, but of our hearts as well. And so here's what we're going to do. Starting next week, we're going to roll out a new initiative that we're calling First Allegiance 2020. And the idea is what would it look like to be faithful to Jesus during these very unordinary times, and specifically in these 58 days leading up to a presidential election? How does pledging our first allegiance to Christ shape our political engagement? Another way of putting it is, what if before we were democratic or Republican or independent or conservative or liberal or libertarian, what if before any of that we first saw ourselves as citizens of the unshakable kingdom of God? How would that change the way that we participate in this season? Not just the way we vote, although that matters, but how would it change the way that we carry ourselves? How would it change the way that we posture our hearts? How would it change the way that we speak? How would it change the way we treat those with differing views, both in real life and online? How would the character of Christ shape our conduct during this season? So those are some of the questions that we're going to be asking, some of the questions that will be shaping our worship and our prayers and our sermons and our conversations over the next couple months. And the idea isn't to get quote-unquote political as we think of it. We're not going to take partisan dives into controversial issues or that sort of thing. We're really not. The issue is that we are pledging our allegiance to Jesus first and foremost, who is the King of kings, who is the Lord of lords, who's the only one worthy of our first allegiance. And so it's not just a sermon series, but as you'll see next week, we're rolling out a whole initiative that'll have opportunities for us to learn together, for us to have true conversation with those who think and see things differently than we do. And we're going to learn how to do it with speech that's seasoned with grace. We're going to learn how to not just withdraw from the things of this world, but to occupy this world as those whose citizenship comes from another place. And so we're going to give ourselves to the practices of neighbor love, the practices of peacemaking, the practices of seeking wisdom and pursuing justice and removing the log from our own eyes and so forth. Next week, First Allegiance 2020 will roll out, and I am so excited for an opportunity for us to gather here week after week as the one place in all of creation where the lordship of Jesus should go unopposed. And I hope you'll join us on that journey. We don't know how long we'll be here at Les Schwab specifically. We'll be here as long as weather permits. 
which means if I'm sitting outside on Saturday morning for soccer games, I think we can sit outside on Sunday morning for church. So we'll just uh, play that one by ear. But I'm excited to dive into that together. This morning, we come to Genesis chapter 22, the passage that AP read for us. And it's a very familiar passage. And it's a passage that, uh, in many ways, is one of the most familiar and definitely one of the most discussed stories in the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. This is a story that has endured for probably four or 5,000 years now, and a story that raises all kinds of questions about life and about God and about life with God. If you're anything like me and grew up in a Christian environment, this is one of those stories that we first learned in flannel graph, in Awana, in Sunday school, in youth group. And it's a story that captivated our imaginations early on. We felt the drama and the tension of this father who was being asked to sacrifice his son. And then at the last minute, God provides this ram and the life of the son is spared. So I remember this from a very young age as being an interesting story. Maybe even an exciting story to some extent. But I also remember the first time that I encountered this as a problematic story. I remember the first time I was sitting in a college class, Philosophy 121, Introduction to World Religions. And the very first day, my very first uh, class in college, I was a freshman at UCLA, And some of you are going, Pete, I didn't know you went to UCLA. You might know it as the University of Corvallis, Lebanon, and Albany, or better known as Lynn Benton Community College. Uh, Basically exactly like high school, but you could smoke. Um, And I'm 18 years old, sitting there in Philosophy 121, and the first day of class, the old professor stands up, opens a Bible, and reads Genesis 22 in King James. He doesn't say anything else. He just reads it and then lets this class of young, impressionable minds wrestle. And all around me, I remember sitting there and hearing people begin to voice their opposition. What kind of God would ask somebody, to sacrifice their son. And even though, like in the end, Abraham didn't go through with it, can you? it's still so cruel, isn't it? Like can you imagine the PTSD that Isaac would have felt at the end of this thing? Why would God do something like this? And especially if this God is supposed to be a good God, a loving God, a God that we can trust. What kind of God would test somebody like this? And it didn't even stop there because, of course, this story is sacred for Jewish people and for Christians. This story also appears in the Quran. This is a sacred story for Muslims as well. And so then you start to think, well, if This Abrahamic God is a God who sometimes asks his followers or his believers to inflict violence on another 
in faithfulness to him, then that starts to explain a lot of the problems of the world. That starts to explain a lot of the religious wars and conflicts that have resulted in terror. What kind of God would do this? The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrestles with this story in his little book, Fear and Trembling. And he essentially suggests that in this story of Genesis 22, Abraham has to choose between his religion and his ethics. That what do we do if right religious behavior means wrong ethical behavior? And how do you even find yourself in that spot where religion is supposed to be foundational to ethics in sacred texts like this? I remember clearly sitting there in Philosophy 121 and for the first time realizing how problematic and how troublesome this story is. Now here's the thing. We're Christians. I'm a Christian. And I could, and I did, raise my hand and try to give a little bit of a bigger biblical context for this story right? If you just read this one chapter without ignoring everything that happened before and everything that happened after and ultimately everything that's going to happen in the New Testament, then yeah, it doesn't quite make sense. But don't you start to see, I I would say, that once you especially get to the New Testament and the picture of Jesus, that all of a sudden this story starts to make a little bit more sense, Don't you see like you have this father and this son who he loves And the father uh, brings his son up this hill. And the father asks the son to carry the wood, which would mean his death, upon his own back. And the son, we know Isaac isn't just some little kid. He's an adult. He's probably in his 20s or 30s. And so when he follows his father up the mountain, when he carries the firewood, when he lies down on the altar, he is a voluntary participant in this story. And I'm listening to it and going, this starts to make sense of it, doesn't it? In Abraham and Isaac, we see this picture of God the Father and God the Son, Jesus willingly going along to offer himself as a sacrifice. And it helps a little bit, but then you're still left with all kinds of questions. Especially the fact that we need to reconcile this God in Genesis 22 with the God who reveals himself to us in Jesus. A God who is already earlier in Genesis and more clearly later on will condemn human violence against anyone made in his image and likeness. A God who is asking his people to trust him and to follow him and to walk with him. It still raises all kinds of questions. I'm not going to answer all of them but I want to respond to a couple or respond with a couple ideas. The first we need to understand 
And I wouldn't ever go as far as to disagree with Kierkegaard. But the truth is, for the first readers of this story, they didn't perceive a dilemma between Abraham's religion and his ethics. Of course, we today, as modern people, understand the ethical dilemma here. But in the ancient Near East, religious sacrifice of children, and specifically of firstborns, was normative. This was not something that people in that culture would have freaked out about. Not that it was an easy, no big deal kind of thing. Of course it was a big deal. That was the nature of these sacrifices. But so many of the pagan gods and the nations that worshipped them, this was part of their worship. And so Abraham of Ur, early, early on in this redemption story of the world that God made and loves, really wouldn't have thought twice when his God asked for his child. This would have been normal. Now we look back now, we see the ethical dilemma, but at the time, it wasn't there. Now the other thing that's interesting is um, one of the offensive parts of this text is simply the idea that apparently we have a God who tests his followers. And I don't like that idea. I don't like tests. I don't like any kind of tests. I didn't like tests in school. I don't like driver's tests. I don't like blood tests. I don't like any of that stuff. Neither do you. But apparently God tests. And I actually remember sitting in that philosophy class when somebody was objecting to that idea. And I was like, well, maybe it wasn't really that God was administering a test because there's something God didn't know. Maybe God was trying to help Abraham understand something. God was testing Abraham for Abraham's sake so that Abraham could see something about himself. And it sounds like a much better, like a fatherly, wise kind of way of testing your children. But look at verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. The result of the test is that God now knows something that he didn't know previously. Which raises even more questions, doesn't it? We're left with the idea that apparently, just like with us, God experiences different kinds of knowledge. There's knowledge, those things that we know intellectually, but then there's knowledge of those things that we know intimately, personally, and experientially. And apparently God didn't want to just intellectually know that Abraham trusted him. He wanted to receive and experience that trust personally. He wanted to be loved, not just know that he was loved. And so the idea of child sacrifice wasn't an ethical dilemma in that time. Every religion and every nation around Israel practiced it. 
The other thing we have to note is that Isaac isn't just any son. He is the promise fulfilled that God had made to Abraham and his wife Sarah in their old age. He is the beginning of this family that would become God's redemptive community on earth. He is the firstborn of the nation of Israel. And so when Abraham obediently agrees to offer his son Isaac, there's so much more on the line than we even realize, that it's not just his son and that would be enough. But this son represents future. This son represents a promise. This son represents the beginning of a nation out of which the ultimate redeemer and reconciler would come. And so the stakes are even higher than we realized. And at a personal level, God seems to get it. It's not like God is some distant, removed, unrelatable deity in the clouds. God seems intimately knowledgeable of not only Abraham's situation, but Abraham's emotional state as well. Take your son, verse 2. Your only son, whom you love. He could have just stopped at son, it would have been clear. Your only son, meaning, yeah, that Ishmael thing happened, he's gone now. You're the only one, he's, this is the only one he got left. The son whom you love. God is relating to Abraham as a father, understanding what he's asking him to do. Not just some stiff, legalistic, religious practice from one father to another, saying, I'm asking you to take your son, your only son, whom you love. Which, by the way, this is the first mention of the word love in the Bible. And we understand the significance of first mentions. When you want to understand the way a word is used in the scriptures, we go back and see the first place it's used And that helps us define it biblically. The first place that love is used is to describe the love of a father for his son. And so all of a sudden, this story, if we're honest, is just so complex. (laughs) If we're going to take it seriously if we're going to actually wrestle with its meaning, both back then and for us today, if we're going to take it seriously, we don't really know how to do that because all the stories that we engage at a popular level, no characters are this complex. But apparently, the person of God in the story of Scripture would take a lifetime or even an eternity to fully come to know. And so we've got all these problems, but even if we're able to name those and embrace the mystery and the tension that they create within us, we begin to move on and we begin to ask, okay, well, 
This was a unique time and a unique place, a unique moment in this story where God asked this one guy to sacrifice this one child. So even if we embrace, okay, it doesn't mean that if God asks me to go kill somebody or do violence to him, that I should do that. It means that ethical and religious dilemma is alive and well for us because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit he's given us. And so then we start to go, well, what's the allegory or what's the broader uh, picture that we're trying to get here? And we start to say, well, how have I experienced God the way Abraham is? Um, even though I don't like tests, is it possible that God does put us through tests sometimes? Is it possible that as a father, God is putting circumstances in our lives or even directly calling or commanding us to do things in obedience to him for the sake of testing our faith and loyalty to him. And could it be that God as actually, just like Abraham, doesn't just want to know that I love him, he wants to be loved by me? And maybe it's not my son that I'm being called to sacrifice, but maybe it's that other thing which is so precious and valuable to me. Whatever that thing is, I'm being called to lay down, to give up, to leave behind, to sacrifice that particular career path or that particular opportunity or that amount of money or that material thing or the respect and admiration of that group of people, or whatever it is, what am I being asked to lay down, to leave behind, to burn on the altar for the sake of loving God? And am I willing to do it? Am I willing to obey God at any cost? Am I willing to sacrifice everything to follow him? Now, the truth is, there are times where God does test us. There are times where God is actively fathering us, forming us, shaping us, and refining us. In some ways, I tend to think that these unordinary times that we're in at the moment as a church in our nation we would do well to embrace it as a test. To embrace it as an opportunity for what's really in us to be revealed. For our true loyalty and identity and objects of our worship to be exposed. We would do well to embrace whatever hardships or struggles we're facing as a test from God, not as punishment, but as loving fatherly discipline for the sake of forming his son in us. And so I don't want to say there's nothing to this idea that just like Abraham, sometimes God will call us to make sacrifices or to lay down our lives in order to love him faithfully. There is something to that, but that's not how the first readers of this story 
would have understood its meaning and significance. This is one of the few stories in the Bible that has its own name. It's called the Akeda. A-K-E-D-A-H. Or sometimes a Q instead of the K. The Akeda. And in Hebrew, this is just shorthand for, instead of saying, you know, the place in Genesis 22 where Abraham sacrifices Isaac, it's the Akedo. This is such a commonly discussed story. It has its own name. Now, Akeda in Hebrew doesn't translate as the testing of Abraham's faith. It doesn't translate as God asking Abraham to make a sacrifice or to make an offering. The Akeda translates the binding. The binding of Isaac. The first people that would have heard this story, the children of Israel, didn't primarily locate themselves in this story by identifying with Abraham. They saw themselves as Isaac. They didn't see this primarily about the testing of Abraham's faith. They saw this as a story about the fate of God's people who were represented by this son, this only son who was loved by his father, the promised son out of whom would grow this nation, this redemptive community, and eventually this savior. When Israel's reading this story, they're not going, hmm, what is God asking me to sacrifice on the altar? They're saying, we're on the altar. We are Isaac. We are the ones that are lying there, subject and open, vulnerable to the justice and the judgment of God. The drama in the story is, will we live or will we die? Will Israel, will the people of God have a future or is this where the story ends? So there are obviously all kinds of parallels, allegories, symbols, typology, between Isaac and Jesus. And which, to whatever degree they're there, they're there. But listen to the way my friend Josh sums this up. Moving to look at the story from the angle of Jesus, things take on one more light. Jesus is not Isaac at the cross. He is the ram. We are Isaac, whose existence is threatened under the divine judgment that hangs over us. It is we who are held under the power of sin and the grave. Death comes to all. Similar to Israel, hearing the story of Isaac and seeing their own body on that altar, we hear the story of Jesus and should see our own existence threatened on the chopping block. He is the head of humanity, the blessing to the nations and the promise of the Father in whom our fate is bound. 
But listen, Jesus is bound to the cross as the substitute in our place, like that ram in the story of old. In the redemptive humanity of Christ, God takes our wickedness, exclusion, and forsakenness upon himself in order to extinguish it in the power of divine love and set us free to live within his ultimate devotion for us. The cross is that place where God the Father, through the Son and in the Spirit, raises the knife through Israel, through the Roman Empire, through us as wicked, rebellion, fallen humanity, and plunges it into his own chest in the vicarious humanity of Christ. In order to bear our punishment, exhaust the destructive power of our sin, and bring us home to rest in the all-encompassing divine power of his sacrificial love. we start to see this other picture here. And of course, it doesn't answer all of our questions or all of our complaints about this story. But it begins to zoom in on the most important thing that we can find. It's a picture of a God who willingly enters into the suffering of humanity, who takes the curse upon himself, he raises the knife and plunges it, not into us, but into his own chest, in the humanity of Christ. The place where this story leaves us is with the simple charge to remember that it is the Lord who provides. So if you have the sense that God is calling you to radical sacrifice, radical obedience, willingly laying down your life, sacrificing that which is most precious and valuable to you for the sake of chasing after him with all your heart, if there's something like that that God is calling you to, then go chase after it. But at the end, as Christians, we don't read this story coming away asking, what is it that I need to do do for God to prove to him how much I love him? In the end, we come away from this story seeing, what more could God have done for us to prove how much he loves us? Not what is the thing that God needs from me and how much am I willing to give to him, but what is it that I need from God and how willing he has been to give his very life for me? We worship the God who provides. This morning we gather here to pledge our allegiance to that God, to express our hope, our longing, our brokenness, to cry out to that God because he is the God who has and does and will provide. For the deepest needs of our heart, 
for the hope of humanity, for the future of this world, there literally is no other God like him. Will you worship God as your provider today? Will you trust him instead of any other idol, any ideology, any person, anything, any accomplishment, any possession, any state of being that you deem more valuable, will you trust him to satisfy the longings of your heart and the needs of this broken world? That's why we're here, to worship the God who provides Linda's going to come and lead us to the table this morning.